The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Grace to you. It's a delight to have you here, delight to be here with you. Once again, we are moving our way through my book, How to Understand and Apply the Old Testament, giving one week to each chapter. This week we are on chapter 9. So we're moving through the 12 steps from exegesis to theology, and we are in part 3, context. Where does the passage fit? Last week was historical context, this week literary. When we talk about literary context, what we're focusing on is the role of the passage plays in a whole book. How does it contribute? What would be lost if our particular passage was not part of this text? So this morning we're going to look at maybe only one area, if we have time, two, or perhaps three. So grasping literary context, then a case study in Psalm 121, and then a case study in the 12, the book of the 12. Let's pray. Dear Lord, this has been a joy for me to unpack somewhat the culmination of my years of academic ministry to date. Thank you for receptive, hungry hearts who want to learn to read for depth and not just distance, who want to dig for gold and not simply rake pretty leaves. I pray you'd meet us this morning as we consider where a particular passage fits, what comes before, what comes after, what, what are the right questions to be asking. And I just testify, Lord, to my own neediness, asking that you would use this vessel of clay. Thank you for fresh discoveries. And that through those discoveries, we can know you gain bedrock, rock-solid, unshakable truth upon which to base our lives, in which we can find protection when the storms come, and surely they will. Meet us this morning, I pray, with clarity and hope. Through King Jesus, we pray. Our Sovereign, our Savior, our Satisfier. All right, so you've got your handout, grasping literary context. What we're talking about are three particular spheres, literary placement, literary function, and literary details. Where does our passage fit? So literary placement is a passage's location. So here's some of the key questions that we should be asking. Is the passage part of a larger literary grouping that has a discernible beginning, middle, or end? What leads up to the passage? What follows from it? How's the book organized? How does the passage fit within this section, this book, this canonical division, the Testament, or the Bible as a whole? In that order. 
So what we're going to do this morning is use Daniel chapter 3 as a case study. So I invite you to open up your Bibles to Daniel 3. Who can tell me what's in that passage? What's it about? Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So the fiery furnace. Open up your Bibles, Daniel chapter 3. And it's 30 verses, let's walk through it, and then we're going to consider literary placement, literary function, and literary details in this particular text. It's a story that our kids usually learn, and let's consider how well you have learned it. (laughs) King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, whose height was 60 cubits, and its breadth 6 cubits. He set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. So 60 cubits, 90 feet tall. Awesome. An awesome statue that could be seen for great distances. The king Nebuchadnezzar sent to gather the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image of the king uh, that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the justices, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Sound a little repetitive? And the herald proclaimed aloud, You are commanded, O peoples, nations and languages, that when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigon, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, as soon as all the peoples heard the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigone, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music, all the peoples, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the golden image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and maliciously accused the Jews. They declared to King Nebuchadnezzar, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigone, the harp, the bagpipe, and every kind of music shall fall down and worship the golden image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you've appointed over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, these men, O king, pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar in furious rage commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, when you hear the sound of the horn, the pipe, the lyre, the trigone, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, 
you shall immediately be cast into the burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Oh my. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, This is, this is beautiful. O oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with fury, and the expression of his face was changed against Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He ordered the furnace heated seven times more than it was usually heated. And he ordered some of the mighty men of his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and to cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in in their cloaks, their tunics, their hats, and their other garments. And they were thrown into the burning, fiery furnace because the king's order was urgent and the furnace overheated. The flame of the fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, yes, the same, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell bound into the burning, fiery furnace. And that was the end of them. No. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose up in haste. He declared to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. He answered and said, But I see four men, unbound, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Then Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the burning fiery furnace, and he declared, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out from the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that the fire had not any, had any power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him and set aside the king's command and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree, any people, nation, or language that speaks anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses laid in ruins, for there is no other god who is able to rescue In this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. The word of the Lord. If you were tackling this text, asked by your small group to lead the Bible study this week, and you were considering literary context, the first thing I'd ask you to do is consider this chapter's placement. This chapter's placement within the book, within the unit of the book that it falls, and then broader within its canonical division called the writings 
in Jesus' Bible, and then within the whole of Scripture itself. So, let's consider the placement of Daniel within the book's overall structure. So we've got 12 chapters in this book. The book can divide right down the center. We have six chapters of stories and six chapters of visions. The stories themselves are all court stories that focus on God's sovereign control over the present. Over present-day Babylon, the very God that you and I believe in was alive and well back there. Daniel and his three friends were following this God And the stories chronicle a number of sagas, six of them in their lives, that identify the absolute supremacy and sovereignty of our God over all things in the present. Part two addresses God's sovereign control over the future. Though it may not look like it, When the rebel armies come, when the kingdoms rise, and when antagonism gets pressed against God's people, though it may not look like it's true, this book declares our God is absolutely sovereign over all things. Over all. So two parts. God is sovereignly in control of the present. He is sovereignly in control of the future. We have the court stories and we have the visions. So let's get inside here. Now within this first half, these court stories, which is where Daniel 3 falls, what do we find? Well, six developing moments. The introduction of this book. You can just turn in your Bible forward and just look at some of the headings. So Daniel's taken to Babylon, Daniel's faithfulness in the midst of Babylon, wherein he and his friends are raised up to high power. Just like Jehoiakim, the king of Judah, when he had been taken away, where this narrative ended in the book of Kings, in Jesus' Bible, the story ends in Kings and then picks up again in Daniel. The book of Chronicles doesn't follow the book of Kings in Jesus' Bible. It comes at the very end of the Old Testament. So the story books began in Genesis, take it up to the book of Kings, where Jerusalem falls, Jehoiakim, the king, gets taken to Babylon, and then in due course, he gets taken out of prison and raised up to the right hand of the king, where he eats at the king's table day after day. Well, he wasn't the only one. In 605, Daniel and his friends had been taken. In 597, Ezekiel is taken, and then in 586, Jerusalem falls. Three different moments of exile. Daniel has been up in Babylon, and there are certain dietary restrictions that the Jews have, and we're told Daniel and his friends are following the clean food laws, and they think there's no way they're going to be be able to perform like they can, but... Not true. The Jews begin to perform better than all the others, all the other exiles who are there, and Daniel and his friend get a high place and position, recognize that there's something distinctive about them. Then we move into part two. Nebuchadnezzar has a statue dream. That's what we just saw, was a giant statue in chapter three, but chapter two gives clarity that This statue that he sees, that he can't unpack, he sees part of the mystery, but not the whole. 
And he tells his wise guys, you need to not only tell me what I, not only tell me what my dream means, but what I dreamt. And the wise guys say, there is no one on the earth that could tell you such a thing. And so the king tells the order, okay, we're going to kill everyone, all the wise guys on, in the kingdom. And Daniel said, why the haste, O king? Give me a day. And he and his three friends get down on their knees and they plead with God. Turn with me to chapter 2. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, in verse 20. To whom belong wisdom and might. He's the one who changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So, Daniel comes in and the king says, Tell me, O man, what I dreamt. Daniel says, there's not a man on the earth that could tell you such a thing, but there is a God who is over all things, who discloses mysteries. And then God, by his mercy, works through Daniel. He tells the king about a statue with a head of gold, a chest of silver, thighs of bronze, and shins and feet of iron mixed with clay. These are four kingdoms, O king, and you, O king, are at the top. The head of gold. Well, it appears that, and and then the interpretation comes. There are four kingdoms, right, that are going to be unpacked in due course. Four kingdoms, beginning with Babylon, the rest are not named yet. Two of the other kingdoms Two of the, so three total in this book, three of the kingdoms of the four are laid out and they're just moving in succession. Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, the Greeks, and then, question mark, who's next? But it's in that day that the Messiah will rise, Daniel's going to tell us. So these kingdoms are laid out. Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold, and yet the dream doesn't end there. The dream continues with this small stone that comes and smashes the feet of the fourth kingdom, demolishing all human powers, and then it grows, the stone grows into a giant mountain. And so we read in chapter 244, In the days of all those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And Nebuchadnezzar says, truly, verse 47, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries. Now we turn our page and we see chapter 3 arising, and it's very clear that Nebuchadnezzar didn't like being the head of this statue. He wanted to be the whole. So a statue is built 90 feet high and our three guys won't bow down. The rest of the stories in the book detail one, Nebuchadnezzar goes crazy until his heart is humbled and he cries out to God for help 
And he actually becomes a believer in Yahweh as the great high God over all things. Not simply affirming Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's God as supreme and able to do things that none other, but actually giving his own allegiance, it appears, to Yahweh as God over all. And then he has a son. Belshazzar comes, sees handwriting on the wall. He's as proud as his father was originally. And things don't go well. Daniel ends up coming and gets pitched in a den, not a dean, a lion's den, and God delivers him. All these stories are designed to elevate Yahweh, not to elevate these four dudes. Old Testament characters become models for us only insofar as they make much of Yahweh. He is the ultimate king over all things. So we see where this fits within the section. How about within Jesus' Bible? Well, You'll recall in Luke 24 that Jesus' Bible has three parts. Same books as our Old Testament, but his, book was, his Old Testament was arranged differently than ours. It was the books of Moses, then the prophets, then in Luke 24, he picks the most major book that's up front, the Psalms. As a, it appears to be a, a title for the whole. But outside the Bible... We find Jewish testimony that the three-part canon in Jesus' day was structured this way. This is how the Jews were thinking. And we see elsewhere in the New Testament that Jesus' Bible began with Genesis, ended with Chronicles. That all the book of the Twelve was one book. That, what else do we see? We see Psalms up front, Genesis, Chronicles, those are elements that the New Testament itself testifies to. And it fits well with this structure. So what do we see? What we see is we have the law books, which are narrative. They include a lot of different genres, genealogies, laws, prophecies, songs. But they're all fit within the story that began in Genesis 2-4. Genesis 1-1 through 2-3 is a preface to the whole. But when we get to Genesis 2-4, Adam and Eve aren't even made yet again. So the story that carries on all the way to the end of Revelation begins in Genesis 2-4, and that story, though, has some pauses. We come to the end where Moses dies, and the story just continues on into the book of Joshua. We enter into the prophets. The prophets are where the Old Covenant is enforced. It's established in the law. It's enforced in the prophets. First, we hear about what happened in the covenant history, and it's not a good story. Moses himself anticipated that Israel would go downhill when they arrived in the land, that they would be exiled from the land and broken in their relationship with God. That's exactly what happens. And we come to the end of the book of Kings. The two Israelite kingdoms have been torn, not only torn apart, but broken down. Israel in the north went down in 723. 586, Judah goes down. And all of the major Leaders are either dead or hiked off to Babylon. Only the poorest of the poor are left in the land. And the story pauses right there in Jesus' Bible. We heard what happened. Now we hear why it happened in the latter prophets. And these are 
the big books, beginning with Jeremiah. He's not the first of the prophets, but he's the first in Jesus' Bible. He's the longest prophet. Then comes Ezekiel, the next longest. Then Isaiah, the next longest. Isaiah actually precedes Jeremiah chronologically. But the only part of Jesus' Bible that is chronological is the storybooks. All the rest are based on size in arrangement. So Jeremiah is up front, then Ezekiel, then Isaiah, then the twelve. And the twelve get us all the way into a post-exile period where Israel has returned to the land. Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi has returned to the land, but they still have no king. There's no change of hearts. And so ultimately Israel continues in slavery which is right where the story at the end of Kings left off. It's a harsh history with a harsh message. But all the while, there's these little images of hope. The kingdom is still in God's plan. There's a king who is rising, and he will defeat the evil one and make a way where there is no way. We come to the writings, which are about the old covenant being enjoyed. Now, enjoyed is a weird thought because the writings are filled with suffering. But this is the kind of Christian hedonistic joy that we celebrate. A joy in the midst of deep pain, of deep longing. And every one of the writing books have a positive angle because there are either, there's either a people or persons who are at the forefront of the stories or at the forefront of the poetry putting their hope in God. So, Ruth is a narrative prelude recalling brokenness in the past and hope into the future. David's ancestors were exiles in Moab. And then God delivered them through a redeemer from Bethlehem. Now, we ended our story with Israel without a king. Israel is David's descendants are now exiles in Babylon. And Ruth, then, enters into that dark world to recall a story of past grace wherein God delivered David's ancestors by a Redeemer from Bethlehem in order to give hope that there's another Redeemer coming. Then we read about him in the book of Psalms. A Redeemer who triumphs only through deep tribulation. And the prayers of the Christ become the songs of the saved. The words in the Psalter are the words of the Anointed One. Over and over again, the Mashiach, the Mashiach, the Messiah. All throughout the Greek Old Testament, every time we see Messiah, it's just rendered the Christ, the Christ, the Christ. All the pains of the Psalter are the pains of the Christ. And the reign of the Psalter that comes on the defeat of evil, the overcoming of suffering, they are the, it is the triumph of the Christ. And in, our, in light of our relationship with Him, if we, as it says in Psalm 2.12, take refuge in Him, His words become our words. His hope becomes our hope. His triumph becomes our triumph. And so we use the Psalter. We find such life there because we have one who's able to identify with us in our weakness and who carries us into his reign. That's the Psalms. Then we have Job, an example of deep pain 
And that God is worth fearing simply because of who He is, not because of what He gives or takes away. Proverbs, guidance, not simply for the wise noble ones, but a picture for us of what the ultimate wise king would look like. Ecclesiastes, what do we learn in light of earth's brokenness? How to pursue joy with a fear in God even when life does not make sense. And Song of Songs, celebrating earthly marriage, earthly sexuality as a pointer that engenders hope for the day when the ultimate groom will come for his bride and rescue her out of her brokenness. Then, at the very end of the former writings, Lamentations comes. These commentary books that are outside the story, or actually within the story, that are giving clarity to how to understand the narrative books, these commentaries began with Jeremiah's voice and end with Jeremiah's voice. And what that does, Jeremiah was the prophet who lived through the destruction of Jerusalem. So Lamentation's placement in the writings just before the book of Daniel, moving us, Daniel is is part of the story. It's a narrative book. What Lamentations does is it puts back on the map for you and I as readers of Jesus' Bible the focus on exile, the focus on brokenness, the focus on Jerusalem's deep need and where Israel is separated from God. And it raises the question, God, we know you're in charge but do you still care for us? Into that reality, the story of Daniel enters. Here's the end of Lamentations. But you, O Lord, reign forever. Your throne endures to all generations. Renew our days as of old, unless you've utterly rejected us and you remain exceedingly angry with us. Oh God, I'm absolutely confident you're still on the throne, but I don't know if you're for us. Jerusalem is in ruins. This is where the story ended in the book of Kings. Jerusalem was in ruins. And Lamentations then provides a bridge for you and I back into the story. The story is what frames Jesus' Bible. It is the lens by which we're to understand everything. So we enter back into the story now. With that question, oh God, we know you're in charge, we know you reign, but do you care? There were three guys hiked off, four guys hiked off to Babylon, and God raises them up. God reveals to them mysteries. God preserves them through fire. God preserves them through, from wild beasts. Oh yes, not only do I reign in the present, but I care. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons, O king. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise, knowledge to those who have understanding. And in the days of those kings, represented in the statue, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms, bringing them to an end, and it shall stand forever. And the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and the Lord of kings, the revealer of mysteries. So we're asking the question, not only where does our passage fit within the book, where does it fit within the section of the book? Where does it fit within Jesus' Bible? 
and it makes a contribution. How about literary function? What we're asking here is a passage's specific purpose, not just its placement, its purpose and its function within this particular book. So the questions we're asking at this point is, okay, when we look at Daniel 3, what is the main thrust of the book as a whole, and what role does this particular chapter play in the book's storyline or its reasoning? And what I'm encouraging is that as you're doing your devotions, these are the kinds of questions that you ask. In order to, I mean, there's so much benefit, and I've said this many times, so much benefit to reading the Bible a chapter at a time, four chapters a day can get you through the Bible in a year. So much benefit to just see the grand scope of God's purposes from Genesis to Revelation, from creation to consummation, to see the focus of Jesus, the exaltation of Jesus over all things and where we fit in that story. There's such benefit in reading the Bible for distance. But there is also elements that we will never see unless we slow down and take it even a paragraph at a time. One little episode, like Daniel chapter 3, at a time, and say, I'm going to spend the next month just considering Daniel chapter 3. Daroshi gave me 12 steps. Let's see, let's start to use them. How many days would that be? Okay, Uh, I'll go five days a week, leaving two extra days for various other pursuits of God. So five times four, I've got 20 days, 12 steps. Well, is that going to be enough time to get through 12 steps? Maybe, what, how about I work it out that I give two, two days per step? So what would that need? 48 days. Okay, so maybe I, boy, is it worth giving two of my months to, and even a little bit more, two months to one chapter of the Bible? Hmm. I'm hoping to finish a commentary on Zephaniah by Christmas. It's my fourth commentary on Zephaniah. This is my fifth year. The book has 53 verses. It's three chapters long. Now, other things have been part of my life in those five years, like like this book here. Um, But oh, the beauties of God that he's revealed to me, illuminated to me, not revealed to me, illuminated. The beauties of Jesus. Have you considered that Peter said all the prophets from Moses and then Samuel And all those who followed spoke about the sufferings of Christ. All of them. Yet you read those 53 verses in Zephaniah, three chapters, and you never find mention of Jesus once. I'm not talking just by name. I'm talking about the messianic figure is never mentioned one time. And yet he's there, says Peter. On the mind of Zephaniah, he was writing about the sufferings of the Christ and the subsequent glories. And so it's your responsibility and my responsibility to go find him. In order that we might be able to find our hearts warmed and awakened to the beauties of this Messiah who has entered into our world for the sake of our souls and for the sake of the nations. 
What's the main thrust of the book and what role does our particular passage play in the book's storyline or reasoning? Does the passage fill in, add on to, introduce, bring to completion, or counterbalance the portion or book of which it is a part? What does it add to the overall picture of this book? What does the overall picture add to it? These are the kind of questions we're asking when it comes to literary function. So let's consider Daniel chapter One more question, I guess. If this passage were missing from the book, what would be lost? Not only from the book, but from the Bible. That's a literary context question. If you can answer that, you've got a good sense for why this passage, why God, God decided to reveal this particular passage to us in contrast to the host of others. So, Daniel chapter 3. We already noted that... In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar dreams about this statue with four parts. We're told Nebuchadnezzar was the head. That is, Babylon was the supreme above all in this statue image. We also know that what the fact that we start out with this image of gold that's 60 cubits in height, that, as I already said, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't content with being the head. He had to be the whole statue. And he wanted global worship. Daniel's three friends refuse to bow down, specifically out of their trust in our God. This isn't just their God. The the God that they're believing in is the very God that we need to be believing in in the midst of such dire circumstances. When it seems like the nation is in crisis and there is no hope. When it seems as though Things in the school system may never change and it's probably going to get much more difficult. When it seems as though God is my business ever going to take off. I thought you called us to enter here. When you look at your year and it's been pain after pain, after pain, relational struggles with your spouse, tensions with a child, sickness in the family. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when faced with the reality that death could happen today, they simply say, Our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us. And I think they're right in that prediction. And so when it says, but if not, I think they're focused on our God is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace. But if he chooses not to, we will still not bow down but believe. God, help us have that kind of faith. 
Nebuchadnezzar declares upon their deliverance that they are servants of the Most High God. He even praises their God for this mighty act. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants who trusted in him. Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these guys who set aside the king's command. Blessed be their God. That's amazing that the king would say such things. It was right of you to not listen to me because you were following a higher authority and I say praise be to him. That's amazing. And then he makes this decree that no one can speak against this God. Now, that statement is is like a first step in a journey for Nebuchadnezzar that's going to work through the next chapter. The first step in Nebuchadnezzar's growing awareness of Yahweh's sovereign control in the present. All the way down to Daniel chapter 4, verse 37, after he literally, all of his, the nails on his body grew out, he, his mind became demented, he began to eat outside like a beast, that's, that's one element of this whole book. The kingdoms of man are going in chapter 7 to be portrayed as beasts. The statue looks human. That's what the kingdoms are supposed to be. Humans are images of God. But what this book shows is that the kingdoms of man are actually beastly. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up embodying the beastliness in his soul. And then in chapter 7... The four kingdoms, rather than being represented by four different metals in a statue, they're portrayed as four beasts, and they stand up against the Son of Man who comes to the Ancient of Days. The Son of Man is now going to be the ultimate image bearer of God, representing God. He is what it means to be truly human in contrast to the beastly kingdoms of the earth. So who will you follow? We read in Daniel 4.37, well, I'll read in 4.34, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored Him who lives forever. Because His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures from generation to generation. This isn't Daniel talking. This is Nebuchadnezzar talking. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. He does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none, there is none that can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Now at the very same time my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me out. And I was established in my kingdom, and still my greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are right, all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. That is the way the head of gold is supposed to respond. 
to recognize that though he be head, he is still servant. Literary details. The particular aspects of the passage that set it apart and that help identify its overall contribution to the book. This is what literary context is. Placement, function, now details. What are we asking here? How comprehensive or selective is the passage? Do any details help you decide whether or not the author wrote it in connection with a specific cultural or historical situation? Does the passage relay material from a distinctive perspective? What does this tell you about the author's intentions? So let's consider Daniel 3. The biblical author clearly wrote to remind the audience of Yahweh's greatness and worth. Everything in the story is designed to show that don't stand up against this God. He indeed is sovereign. That is, he is great over all things and he's worthy of worship, not the king and his statue. And he alone is able to save. Either out of suffering or through suffering. That was the conviction of Daniel's three friends. Our God is able to deliver us But if he doesn't, let it be known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. He is able and he will. He will either save us out of suffering or if it will bring him more glory, he's going to pour that suffering on his people and yet never leave them or forsake them. That is the conviction that we as brothers and sisters need. Recognizing all along that part of the strength for perseverance, how is it that God is going to meet us in the midst of our desperation? It's not only in prayer, not only in Bible reading, but by showing Himself faithful through brothers and sisters like you and me toward one another. We have a God who does not deliver us from all suffering, but who promises to always be with us even through it. At the beginning of Job, what was at stake is, Satan said to God, does Job fear you for nothing? So we have an entire book unpacking the worth of God. Over all things, He is worthy of our fear simply because of who he is and not because he lets my ten children be killed. God didn't do that. Some may say. What Job said is, the Lord gave and the Lord took away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Period. Quotation marks. Then, the inspired scripture, which is inerrant in every Way declares, in all these things, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't sin in saying, the Lord gave the kids and the Lord took them away. Our God is worth fearing, trusting, following, simply because of who he is and not because of what he gives or what he takes away. 
He can, in an instant, remove the suffering. He doesn't have to allow the car accident. Or he can say, because of the work that I want to do in your heart, I'm going to let it happen for the sake of my name and for your ultimate joy. Nebuchadnezzar's initial pride in questioning the three, who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands, is contrasted with his later statement in 329, there is no other God who is able to rescue you in this, rescue in this way. None. Put your hope in Him today. Put your hope in Him today. The king's initial challenge is also countered by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's relentless commitment to the true God and their confidence that He was able to rescue. The one whom we serve is able. Whether He will or not, we do not know. Deliver us out of this moment. But He will ultimately deliver us. It reminds me of of Jesus in the context of Lazarus' resurrection where He says, Those who die, though He die, yet shall He live. And those who live will never die. Though he die, he will never die. Though they kill you, not a hair of your head will perish, he says elsewhere. May God make us people who have that kind of hope. And may God use us as parents and grandparents to instill that kind of hope to our children. May God help us as roommates and as friends to have that kind of conviction about God because as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, oh, the days of darkness will be many. And so the need for this kind of grounding, this kind of hope is so imperative. And then we go to a text like Deuteronomy chapter 8 where Israel is entering into a time of plenty outside the wilderness, now into a land flowing with milk and honey. And God says, oh, Do not forget what I taught you in the wilderness. That man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. That is, the days of plenty are an equal test by which we can forget the great giver of all things. All things from Him, all things through Him, all things to Him. And Daniel chapter 3 is testifying to that kind of a God and that kind of bedrock hope. When Daniel 3 is read in light of the whole book, the emphasis that there was in the fire one like the son of the gods. Who is this fourth character? Well, the king portrays him, the ESV calls it an angel, which is one of the ways that they often translate this term. It just means a messenger. But you have one in the fire who is not being burned and he's identified as the son of the gods. A fourth figure. 
Well, later in the book, we read about one like the Son of Man who receives all authority from the Ancient of Days, all authority in heaven and on earth, dominion and kingdoms, so that all peoples will serve Him and be aligned with His purposes. Then at the, in chapter 9, the word that... Daniel uses is the Messiah, the anointed one. Daniel chapter 9, 24, and it's a tricky text, but the beginning of it is clear. 9, 24, 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city. 70 weeks of years, that's 490 years. You thought 70 Years was all it was going to take to get the exile over? No, remember what Isaiah said. Cyrus was only the first mover. The return under Cyrus would get you back to the land, but then the next stage would be guided by the great suffering servant who would reconcile you with God. Cyrus's ministry would be followed by another's ministry. So at the end of the 70 years that Jeremiah had predicted, that's where Daniel 9 opens, Daniel is saying, oh, a time, time is almost up. Oh God, are you going to fulfill what you've said and return us to the land? And God says, oh Daniel, 70 weeks of years have been decreed for six things. Look what they say, Daniel 9, 24, six things. One, to finish the transgression. Two, to put an end to sin. Three, and to atone for iniquity. There's a grouping there. This, this, and this, all of it is God overcoming the negative elements that keep us from relationship with Him. Then, another positive three elements. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Number two, to seal both vision and profit. And three, to anoint a most holy place or most holy one. Six elements focused on God fixing all the problems of this world and overcoming evil with righteousness. Overcoming taintedness with holiness. And then he says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and to build Jerusalem to the coming of the an anointed one. There he is, the Messiah. That's the word, Messiah. So we have one like the Son of the Gods, one like the Son of Man, and now the Anointed One who will reign over all things and reconcile all people to God. My point is this. It seems as though Daniel chapter 3 is not simply putting us in a position to help exalt in God's sovereignty over all things, to a people living without a king on the throne, separated from Jerusalem, to a people who are longing for the Spirit of God and the King of God to show up, Daniel chapter 3, through that one image of the one like the Son of the Gods, reminds them of the reigning presence of God as tangibly present in order to heighten hope in the coming King. That is, Daniel chapter 3 helps us anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ.
Bert. Good question. Um, I don't think it's because Daniel did. But it, it broadens, broadens the scope of Israelite faithfulness to potentially help people not feel like, well, that was Daniel. But there were also three who stood together in the midst of this but I, I haven't pondered the question too much, and I don't have much, much more to say beyond that. Do you have reflections? No, I've I, I wondered myself. And then... Anybody else have a reflection on Bert's question? Maybe he was traveling. I mean, he, he's a, a high-end dude with great responsibility. That's a, that's a, a very possible answer. Certainly, we don't know. But it's, a, it's an explanation in light of the fact that he, he's not a traditional prophet. He's a politician. And he could have such duties. He's definitely not on the scene. All the way in the back. In a practical Phil. sense, it might have been easier to accuse Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego than it would be to accuse Daniel. So going after this sect or their God, it might have been easier just to say, you know, here's three that you bow down to and not mm-hmm. have accused Daniel because of the, his position. It could be so, and yet as soon as we get later in the book, it's going to be heading right directly at Daniel in light of his prayer life. Yes, I think he did, but so, why, why the three and not him also? I don't believe he bowed down either, but I, I mean, yeah, bowed down to the king. Right, right. And his testimony has lasted through the years. The, the image of Nebuchadnezzar made that is the making in, in chapter 3, is it the same that we saw in, in the dream? Or is it a different one? Or is, is it, the it, it doesn't unpack it. It's simply the fact that the dream precedes directly upon the statue building that the flow of the narrative suggests to me that he wasn't content being only the head of this statue, that he wanted to claim the whole thing, and that he wanted it to result in the worship of him rather than surrender to the Lord. But it doesn't describe this, this new statue, so we don't, we don't know for certain um, 
how it was shaped. Yes, that's good. Yeah, it absolutely was. Daniel wanted to draw attention to the beauty of this kind of faith and even more attention to the object of their faith. They are, they, they're not as high as Daniel, it doesn't appear, but they definitely have a, a role that is, that is higher. Yeah, so the question is, are they in chronological order or literarily placed? Um, I think they're in chronological order. But I'm not a Daniel scholar. I, I mean, I haven't, I, I'd have to look at that more carefully and see what others have said. Right, because I think it raises the question that if they were already governors of Babylon, now we hear it again. You wonder what, what point is driving that in. Good. It's a good question. Scott in the back. The question is, do I expect to see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven? I do. Um, Pastor John, in his Christmas poems on Nebuchadnezzar, um, he came to that same conclusion. I don't, we, we have very little from him, but we have more from him than from most. And it seems to me that what we see here is a journey of awakening comparable to what happened in Nineveh under Jonah and a true saving faith. That's at least what I would understand now. But again, I'm, I'm not a Daniel scholar, meaning I, there's people who've thought a lot more about that question than I have, and I'm sure I could learn from them. Bruce. So Daniel and Ezekiel did overlap. In fact, Ezekiel even mentions Daniel in his book. So it's one of the few instances where we see prophets actually aware of others who are in their sphere. But um, they didn't overlap completely. Daniel outlived Ezekiel um, and ministered all the way down into the days when Persia 
took control. Um, but apparently not into the days when Cyrus decreed that, like, uh, that Haggai, Zechariah, Joshua, and Zerubbabel could all go back to the land. Um, so Daniel and Ezekiel, he would have been alive with Haggai and Zechariah, but Haggai and Zechariah didn't start preaching, at least as we have it recorded in the Bible, um, their sermons come after Daniel is out of the scene. So there's a movement um, in the story. And Daniel dominates a section of the story that there's a little bit of overlap, but he has a distinct voice at a specific period. I don't think we have time to cover Psalm 121. I encourage you to read it, and then you can go to the PowerPoint slides but even there, you're not going to see everything that I... Go to the book. That's where... It's in, it's in the book. Um, but I wanted to go there because of the way it built upon Daniel chapter 3. Where you have this beautiful portrait, and I'll just end by reading the psalm. I won't build its literary context. But I'll just end by reading the psalm for the morning. It's... It's hope. I lift my eyes up to the hills. I lift my eyes up. If that means anything, it's that the psalmist was down. I lift my eyes up to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. And he's no small Yahweh. He's the maker of heaven, the maker of earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will never slumber. Did you get that? He who keeps you will neither slumber nor sleep. So if your guardian is not sleeping, it means that you can. If your guardian is not sleeping, it frees you to do it yourself. Often, coming to the end of the day with so many things... The step of greatest faith is to put your head on the pillow to pray and to go to sleep. To entrust it all to the great provider who never sleeps and never slumbers. The Lord is your guardian, your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. This Yahweh will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life, even if they take it from you. He will keep it. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. So go to the book and see how I wrestle with the literary placement of this psalm within the whole Psalter. Five books, this is in the fifth book. Within the fifth book, this is the second of the Song of Ascents. Rising, rising up to Jerusalem in hope to encounter the living God. 
and the recognition that I don't have to get there in order for him to be my guardian. He's with me now. So, to get a sense for literary context in a book like the Psalms, go check that out. But more than that, just rest in the truth that we saw in Daniel chapter 3. We have a God who is able to deliver us, and indeed he will. Though they take your life, indeed not a hair of your head will perish. Father, I thank you that you are faithful, always, ever-present, and that through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, right now, kept in heaven for us. Grant us grace to persevere in this dark world with a hope that is bedrock, with a fear in you that is unshakable, in order that even to the cosmic realm, it may be testified to that you are a God worth fearing simply because of who you are and not because of what you give or take away. And may the radical power of the cross be put on testimony for the sake of your name among the nations we ask. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.